1: And better than ever, a new web interface for the start of the basketball season, and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all the basketball and football action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code Believe50, that's B L E A V 50, to receive. Your bonus. Again, that's believe 50. From basketball, football, and baseball postseason, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. A very, very special panel for all of you. Today, we're going to be talking about employment law, talking about uh, Title IX, and we have a very uh, diverse representation here uh, from both the plaintiff side, the defense side, uh, and then we have some in-house counsel and also uh, another attorney uh, that is a Title IX coordinator. Uh, So um, some very special people. So Jenna, Adam, Karina, Piper, really appreciate uh, you all being here. So um, I'll start with uh, you, Karina, and just do a quick little intro, and I'll go through the rest of our uh, distinguished panelists. So Karina Connolly is the interim deputy uh, uh, director for Title IX uh, and DHR investigator at California State University, San Marcos. Then we have Piper Mitchell, who is uh, on East Coast time. So thank you so much for being here. It's uh, nine o'clock for her. She is the Assistant University Legal Counsel at North Carolina Central University. Then we have uh, my friend, uh, Adam Schlauster, who is the, a partner at Fisher Phillips. He represents uh, employers and uh, professional teams and that sort of thing. Then we have uh, Jenna Rangel, who is, um, all the panelists are, are dear friends, by the way, uh, but I called out Adam just because we've been uh, friends for I think probably the longest. But then we have Jenna Wrangle, who is an associate attorney uh, at a uh, I want to say what I was said, a mid-sized law firm. Jenna, yeah. So, um, but I'm even gonna get a bit, I'm gonna have you pronounce the name of the firm because I can't I can't say that name. But uh, so let's uh, let's start with this. So Karina, let's start with you give a little background on um, sort of how you got into title nine and kind of your, your career path a little bit, if you can.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so after law school, I had planned on doing some sort of public service, civil rights law, I wasn't exactly sure where I was going to land. And I ended up being a civil rights attorney for our San Diego Rape Crisis Center, Center for Community Solutions. So there I assisted survivors of um, sexual misconduct, IPV, intimate partner violence, stalking, um, with like civil rights needs that come from fallout of, you know, those types of issues. So how is employment, um, safety, family law, but also um, Title IX. So Title IX was under the grant. And um, I was able to serve as an advisor um, for students from um, my young, the youngest student I helped while I was there was a freshman in high school um, through college. And I worked on um, cases throughout the county and just sort of fell in love with the subject matter. And so I Um, applied for the CSUSM investigator job when it became open. And I've been there about two and a half years. I'm actually going to start on Monday at San Diego State. So I'm transitioning over to San Diego State. And um, it's been super interesting. And um, I've loved it. Happy to be
1: here. Awesome. Thank you, Karina. And we also uh, come from the same law school too. So I've got that connection as well. And I'm so proud of, uh, the accomplishments that you've got going on and congratulations on, um, the San Diego state gig. That's great. Thanks. So we won't say that's a move up cause we don't want to, we don't want to, uh, disrespect the, uh, Cal state San Marcos, but, uh, San Diego state, it's a great institution. So that's, that's yeah. awesome. San
2: Marcos is a wonderful school. Um, but even just the size, and um, we can say it's a move up. <laughs>
1: right. I like it. All right. Um, so, all right, let's uh, let's go to Piper. Let's uh, let's go to you since it's so late. We want to make sure that uh, we get you out of here on a decent time. So, your your background a little bit and um, how you got into the role that you're doing now.
3: So, my background is a little interesting and all over the place. Um, I think it starts with right before I went to to undergrad. I wanted to go to Brown University, and I was class of high school class of two thousand one and two thousand one was when Duke won the NCAA championships. And I was really into March Madness and it decided, you know what, I don't want to go to Brown anymore. I want to go to Duke where they work hard and they play hard. And so that's kind of where my interest in sports law, if you will, took off. Um, But at that time, like I said, it was 2001. I was actually interested in entertainment law, the music space, but illegal piracy was huge at the time. And I will never forget being at a conference, and they were like, listen, technology is moving faster than the music industry, and we're not sure it's the space you want to be in. And I thought that was really good advice, and I was still messing around with it, but I had an opportunity my 2L year to intern with the National Football League's Management Council division, and NFL corporate has two legal divisions, Management Council, which is their labor and employment arm, um, managing the CBAs and the grievances and that process. And then they have kind of their other legal arm, which does the trademarks and licensing. Um, and so I had a great opportunity summer 2007 to intern there. And that's when I fell in love with it. It really was the epitome of waking up and loving what you do every day. Um, the problem I had, though, is I was short-sighted in thinking that because I would interned at the league office, I would automatically get a job. in in one of the 32 teams. That was not the case. And so I had to figure out after I graduated from Howard Law what I wanted to do. In the meantime, while I was at Howard, I was working in their general counsel's office as an intern, and my boss would allow me to work on some matters relating to athletics. And so I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. But, you know, never thought it would go anywhere. After I graduated from law school, I took the North Carolina Bar and had an opportunity to work with Um, a friend of mine who was at the NFL, who went to start his own sports management company. And so I did kind of their legal stuff and served as an NFL agent for two years, um, which had its own ups and downs. It was very interesting and fun to be on the road. I then got a call from my former boss, who was the general counsel at Howard and said, hey, I need you to go into athletics and clean it up. Can you be kind of like the liaison and the conduit between our athletics program and the office of general counsel? So I did that for a year. It was fun, but I didn't feel like I was using my legal skills. So I had an opportunity to go be associate general counsel for Howard, overseeing student and faculty matters. And so my boss told me at that point, I could still have my hands very much in athletics um, from a collegiate standpoint. And Howard is division one and has 19 sports. So I learned a lot about the the role that legal can play in a collegiate um, athletics institution, particularly D1. And so I was there at Howard until 2015. And then got an opportunity to work for a company called Events DC, which is um, the District of Columbia's official sports and convention authority. And I worked on the sports and entertainment side. My second week there, my boss at the time was like, hey, you're inter- interested in sports, right? Yes. Sit second chair as we develop the new entertainment and sports arena. Now, a lot of people may not know the entertainment and sports arena, but it is the practice facility for the Wizards and the home of the Mystics. So the year that the Mystics won um, the national championship, it was in our new building, which I was allowed to see from start to finish and had a big hand in um, developing. So that was really, really cool. So I was at Events DC for four years and then got an opportunity because I love North Carolina to work at North Carolina Central, um, essentially in the same role that I had at Howard as in-house counsel doing student affairs, faculty matters, et cetera. Worked closely with the AD there, although she didn't need much assistance because Dr. Wicker McCree has been there for about 20 years and does great things with the program. Um, But I actually, like Karina, am starting a new job on Monday. I am headed back to Duke um, to be Director of Staff and Labor Relations. And so I will be working from a human resources standpoint I begged to work with athletics and they said yes, Um, but I've never stopped the sports and entertainment realm. I did go back to school in 2013 to get my master's in sports industry management from Georgetown and have been a professor at Georgetown teaching sports law since 2016. So that's my kind of crazy career, but I've always had my hand in sports and there are a variety of ways that we can talk about um, how you can be a sports lawyer And not be fully entrenched as an agent or otherwise. And thank you for having me.
1: It's my pleasure, Piper. That was great, and congratulations again on the uh, the Duke thing. So um, thank you. It just it makes this panel that much more distinguished. You know, San Diego State and Duke. I love it. Uh, Nothing against North North uh, North Carolina Central University, but Duke is great too. So (laughs) thanks. All right, so uh, Jenna, let's go to you um, a little bit of your background and, um, sort of how you got into doing, uh, employment, uh, um, I guess, I guess plaintiffs work, right?
4: Yeah, I got two, I got two tough acts to follow up there. Um, so I am not like big in the sports world or anything like that. I represent public and private employees, um, in their employment disputes. Generally, it's discrimination, harassment, retaliation, those kinds of things. Um, And I got there kind of a gradual process. I went to law school a little bit late. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was a business major out of college. I ended up working in a law firm and then ended up becoming a paralegal and then ended up deciding to go to law school um, and interned in a bunch of different things. Um and eventually ended up at a small kind of general civil lit firm doing all sorts of things from writing estate plans to doing construction defect to primarily doing though business litigation and employment defense, funny enough. Did that for about three and a half years until that firm decided to dissolve. And my uh resume ended up in the hands of my current firm. I wasn't looking to be a plaintiff's lawyer, but the opportunity arose and I'm so happy I took it. Um because it's really, now that I've been in it for seven years, it's really what I um, am passionate about and really enjoy doing. Um, Funny enough, Jeremy would not have known this, but um, this year I kind of got myself involved in a Title IX case and it is pre-lit, so I cannot talk about it, but I did spend a good portion of this year learning a lot about it because there's a lot of similarities to Title IX and what I do under our kind of California and federal employment discrimination laws. So that made a lot of sense to me. Um, I worked at the California Women's Law Center as an intern during law school and actually worked on a Title IX case down here um, in San Diego against a local uh, high school district and really enjoyed that. Um, So I've been having a lot of fun learning about Title IX. Um, This would be um, an athletics an uh, equity type case so not the sexual harassment types. Um, but it's, and I'm, I've, I'm kind of paired up with people who know more than me. Uh, and that's been really, really interesting. So, you know, you, where is it in my world, you might see cases like where a coach is fired by the, the school and claims discrimination or retaliation. There was a big one down here against San Diego state. Um, a former uh, women's basketball coach. There was a big, they big it. So that would be something I would do in my current role, but the title nine stuff I'm kind of just now into, and it's, it's really, uh, I, I enjoy it a lot. Well,
2: that's oh, just a funny you.
4: coincidence, Jeremy.
1: <laughs> no, I love it. No, that's great. Um, too bad. We can't ask you about it, but, um, that's awesome though. If and it
4: resolves, you can, cause it's a doozy.
1: <laughs> we're just going to have to have, have, uh, the same panel back next year then. Yeah. And, uh, so that's awesome. By the way, um, your firm name, I didn't, I didn't want to butcher it. So how do you say it?
4: Haguequist and Eck.
1: Haguequist and Eck. All right. That's, I mean, that, that that's okay. I got it's that. pretty
4: phonetic. Yeah.
1: All right. All right. H and E. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Okay. So Adam, last, but certainly not the least, um, give us a little background and sort of what you're doing now. I know that at, uh, at your firm, you guys are just starting uh, a sports department, right? And uh, which is fantastic. So give us a little background and what you're working on.
0: Sure. Good to see you, Jeremy. Nice to meet you, everybody. Um, I'm Adam Schloester. Uh Background, I'm, I'm a former professional athlete. I played soccer for uh, the San Jose Earthquakes and Major League Soccer. Um, Piper's not going to like this. I played my college soccer at UNC Chapel Hill uh, for two years and uh, I transferred and finished at Loyola Marymount University in LA. Um, <clears throat> found myself going to law school after a few years of working um, and, and I'm now a partner at Fisher Phillips. Um, so we're a national employment defense firm um, and, and so I'm an employment lawyer. What that really means is I'm a workplace problem solver. So um, whether that's representing a business when they're sued by an employee uh, in an equal pay class action or squaring off against an attorney like Jenna uh, in a discrimination, harassment or retaliation type of case, um, or whether it's helping the employer, the business avoid litigation altogether and giving them counseling and advice and, and basically uh, guidance on how to minimize their risk. Um, so that's, that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. And, and what Jeremy said is right, um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm co-chair and leading our firm's uh, brand new sports group, uh, sports industry group. So, we help um, employers in the professional sports ranks, collegiate sports ranks, amateur uh, athletic organizations, and then really any sort of um, business that touches sports, like a stadium, um, an apparel, athletic apparel company, um, really anything that that touches sports um, that has workplace-related issues, we help with.
1: That's awesome. Now, congrats on that new department, Adam. Um, got a uh, fantastic background, as all our panelists do. So let's get into this and I'll throw this up to, to anybody, uh, Jenna, Karina, uh, Piper, Adam. Um, what types of harassment and discrimination are there and wh- what are some of the things that maybe you deal with in your practice? Or I mean, in your job,
4: yeah. If you want to know about it in the employment world, I can I can step in since I bring
1: those. Yeah, let's do that every
4: day. <laughs> um, so generally, harassment and discrimination are based on what we call protected classes. That's you know race, gender, sex, uh, disability. There's a whole there's a whole big category of these things. Um, you can bring the claims under California state law and federal law. Um, but essentially, different, the difference between harassment and discrimination is harassment is when someone in your workplace is mistreating you um, based on your protected class in a way that falls kind of outside what their job description is. And the easiest way to look at that is sexual harassment. In nobody's job description are unwanted or unwelcome sexual advances. In nobody's job description is there you know inappropriate physical touching. I guess there might be one job. But... Um, It's a whole different industry um, that will have its own rules. But generally you look at it as that harassing conduct are things that fall outside of what a manager or coworker might normally do. Discrimination then is when you're being treated differently based on your protected class in these, um, in these job duties. And we call these things adverse employment actions. So if you're being disciplined or um, not being promoted or being terminated, um, being denied certain job benefits because of your protected class. Um, and then a third kind of prong that he didn't mention, but I'll throw it in, is retaliation. And retaliation then is when you're being treated differently in your workplace because you've engaged in a protected activity and protected act. And, and again, in ways such as you're not being promoted or you're being given bad performance reviews or terminated because you do- you did something like make a complaint of sexual harassment, or you refuse to partake in conduct that you reasonably believe to be illegal or um, unlawful in some way. So that's kind of the main, the main kind of actions that, that I, I, or causes of action that I bring. There's a whole bunch of others. But when we're talking about discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, it's always going to be based on something protected.
1: Oh, well, that's great. Just- Gina, I love that. Um, go ahead.
3: I was just going to say to piggyback off, Jenna, that's mostly what you will see in the academic space, um, certainly from the employee standpoint, but also from the student standpoint. Some of that is encapsulated in your student code of conduct, which, you know, every students are familiar with. And so sometimes when we look at Title IX cases, domestic violence, interpersonal violence, stalking some of those behaviors under Title IX as well. And then we've switched them now. Our Title IX investigator still looks at them, but they are still more code of conduct violations now since they can't be considered under the 2020 federal regs related to Title IX, but still same concepts that Jenna described from the student um, standpoint at the university.
1: Well, thanks, Piper. Adam, uh, Karina, anything you want to add to that?
2: I mean, I think they covered it pretty well. Um, I think just like the, you know, important understanding to know, especially since we're in a class, right, that Even in a school setting, you can come forward with a discrimination, harassment, retaliation claim um, to the university, you know, being a student, right? Like if you're being discriminated on one of your protected classes. And um, at the CSU, we've got 13. So like we include veteran status, um, mental health status, right? Um, in addition to the protected classes that Piper, I think Piper, right, was naming. Sorry if I got that wrong. Um, But yeah, you can come forward and, you know, a student adverse action could be not getting into a program that you applied for or getting a failing grade. And you thought that, you know, that wasn't based on your performance, but it was based on... um, your protected class. Um, and then also for harassment, um, as long as, you know, you're experiencing conduct that's sufficiently severe, persistent, or pervasive, right? It doesn't have to necessarily have to be um, in the university setting with your job functions, um, but even just as, as a student, um, you can experience that conduct and come forward. And, and we interpret um, the CSU interprets, um, the federal legislation, legislation, changes a little different. It sounds like we're still doing that under title nine, um, because the administration had said that it could be, you know, baseline standards, what their definitions are. So we've kept all our original definitions in the policy, um, and, and under the single investigator models. I don't know if that's a little too complicated, but I can explain it more if anyone has any questions.
1: Oh, that's great. Karina. Um, Adam, anything to add on that? Or I got another question for you if we want to change gears.
0: Sure, Um, I was just going to throw three quick hypotheticals or examples of each. So discrimination, I have a case where um, someone was uh, let go of their job and they claim that they were let go because they're pregnant or they announced they were pregnant. So that's being treated differently. Uh, The claim is that I was treated differently because I was pregnant and that's a protected class Um, or uh w- women's soccer players not being paid the same as men's soccer players so discriminating against women because of, of their gender it's another kind of example um and and then the same thing for similarly like harassment someone saying i was subject to unwelcomed conduct uh at work because of my race or because i'm over 40. so those are just some examples for the class just to kind of understand um what it looks like in a real life real life scenario
1: no, that's great. Now, thanks, Adam. And I'm going to stick with you and then throw this question out to, uh, to Jenna, Karina, and then Piper. Um, what does a typical sort of employment claim look like in the sense of what's the process uh, for you?
0: Sure. So I'll create two categories of claims. One will be um, a single plaintiff claim, which, which is one person suing. Um, And then a a class action or representative action claim would be the other category. So that's one person suing on behalf of a a group of people. right? So um, starting with the single plaintiff claim, um, it it starts with, uh, there's some some things you need to do before you file a lawsuit in court, um, generally. Uh, If you're gonna sue under one of our civil rights um, statutes in California. So if you're gonna claim you were discriminated against at work, Or harassed or retaliated against generally you um, file what's called a a DFEH charge so a charge with the department of fair employment and housing and and you have to do it um, and you have to get what's called a a a right to sue letter from that department and then you could file your lawsuit Um, my clients are the employer so my clients will receive the lawsuit they'll be served with the lawsuit Um, and and usually i'm involved before the lawsuit hopefully before the lawsuit's even filed um, so we can prevent it. But if not, then I'm notified and and I come up with a strategy um, to help the employer make the lawsuit go away. Um, Or we're gonna fight the lawsuit tooth and nail and go to trial because we think we can win. Um, So pretty similar on the class action type of cases too, except there's not that, um, only sometimes is there that type of prerequisite to filing your lawsuit. Um, class actions are are, are way different. Um, you've got uh, way more way more people involved, right? Because you got one person suing on behalf of a group. Um, but but generally, uh, you know, there'll be different strategy in each. But generally, um, you know, it, it's similar in the sense that you're in court. And from my perspective, you're um, you're you're mitigating risk, you're mitigating loss, you're trying to get the the case dismissed, you're trying to prove that it's wrong. Um, or your client didn't do something right and, and they need to cut their losses and, and, and we need to cut a deal um, before we spend too much money defending the case.
1: Oh, that's great, Adam. Thank you for that. Uh, very insightful. So Jenna, how about you? What's the typical, um, I probably shouldn't say typical, right? But what is, what, what's, what, what's, a, what's a claim look like for you from, from, your, from your perspective?
4: Yeah, so I get it before uh, Adam does. <laughs> um, I, I, usually how it starts is people call us and say that they've been terminated or think they're about to be terminated. And it's not necessarily just termination, but the biggest one is um, they think it's about to happen or it has happened. And they feel or believe it was unfair and unlawful. And sometimes they're not even able to fully articulate the reasons why they think it was unfair or unlawful but we kind of ask them a bunch of questions to kind of figure it out. And if it seems as though it's, is, there could be a case there, we'll bring them in and usually we'll send a letter out to the employer requesting their personnel file and putting them on notice so that um, they're aware that a litigation now might be um, coming their way, which then uh, requires them to preserve <clears throat> evidence essentially. Um, Adam would probably get that letter or, or at, and then he'd probably Um, produce the person's personnel file to us and we would start having a dialogue with the company's counsel. Um, If the case is a case that can be talked about and resolved before litigation, that might happen. Um, And if not, as Adam said, there are certain administrative requirements you fulfill first, which is getting this right to sue letter for any discrimination, uh, harassment, retaliation. Um, There are timeframes associated with that. It's recently been extended, which is great for employees. You now have three years from the date that the last adverse action happened to you to file for your DFEH, and then you have another year to file your complaint. It used to be one year and one year, so it was pretty short. Um, But then once the case gets going and we file it, um, we get into discovery. And employment cases are very, very fact and document intense um, because most of the time you do not get somebody admitting under oath or in a document. I fired her because she told me she was pregnant. That's almost never the case. So you have to look at a lot of what we call circumstantial evidence, which is a lot of looking at how uh, people are treated inside the protected class and out of it, looking at um, what the employer's policies and procedures are and whether or not they actually followed them with this person, things like that. And uh, you go through discovery and you're getting documents and information and taking depositions. At some point, you know, you might talk settlement with the other side. If that doesn't happen, you go to trial. And that doesn't happen a lot in my world. I actually did my first one this year um, because these claims, it's never a slam dunk. And there's a lot of risk involved on both sides. And at the end of the day, um, most of the time, they will settle for varying reasons.
1: Well, thanks, Jenna. And, you know, to your point, I'll highlight something about the circumstantial evidence. Um, And I'm sure this class has heard that term prior to because this is their Uh, fifth class they've had four other classes prior with with another uh, professor and that sort of circumstantial thing is so important because you're right you're very rarely going to get somebody a boss hiring manager or somebody saying I didn't hire this person or I didn't um, we fired this person for some reason right it's gonna they're gonna they're gonna couch it in something they're gonna not make it very clear uh, which really highlights the importance of your role right? to represent the client and to put them in their uh, the best spot possible. And then of course, equally uh, Adam's doing the same thing, but you know, for the other side and um, this happens often in the legal, legal world. Right. But um, and frankly, it happens in sports, right? You always have an opponent. <laughs> so eventually you gotta, you gotta fight, you know, so thanks for that, Jenna. All right, Karina and Piper, anything, I guess from your perspective what is what does a title nine claim look like who brings it um you know who are you normally having conversations with uh, that sort of thing
3: i'll defer to karina first just because we get it after her team does what they do
1: oh and and by the way in your response please um explain what Title IX is. I think that might be, <laughs> that might be helpful. Um, I'm sure folks can, can Google it and all that stuff and they've seen it before, but maybe just a brief explanation to either Piper or Karina. Karina,
3: you're on mute.
2: Thank you, sorry. <laughs> uh, so Title IX is, uh, federal legislation. There wasn't a whole lot of it, um, prior to the Trump administration regulations. Um, but it be- essentially, it came out of the civil rights error. So, um, you know, it's thought of interpreted similarly to employment law. Um, and it basically says that any, educational institution that receives public funding um, has to address you know, gender, gender equality issues. Right. So, and under that umbrella, you can think of sexual harassment. Um, you can think of, um, sexual misconduct in California that would include any sexual activity that doesn't, um, come with consent. And then also I think more relevant or interesting maybe to you all, um, it was interpreted, earlier on actually than a lot of the sexual misconduct, sexual harassment interpretations, it was interpreted to include, um, and equity in sports, um, between women's sports and men's sports. And that's actually not, um, my expertise, um, in working in title nine directly. Um, a lot of the coaches, actually, we have a, um, Deputy Title IX Coordinator who's also a coach, um, who does the more of the sports stuff. But so from my perspective, the way that it works is a student, um, an employee, a faculty member, really um, anyone on the university campus community uh, that feels that they have experienced. Um, you know, any of the prohibited conducts that I talked about, um, any sexual misconduct in dating violence, stalking, and for our policy, also discrimination, harassment, and retaliation based on that protected class. They, um, can, will come to me and they'll come to me in various ways, right? They might talk to a professor, they might talk to another student um, that feels like there's a problem and, and wants to come forward or, you know, maybe they'll be at the Dean of Students office, um, but somehow information will come to me that, you know, they feel like that they were a victim of um, some of that prohibited conduct and I will reach out to them. Um, and for the most part, as long as it's not like I say, something super scary, right? As long as there's not um, like date rape drugs involved, a weapon, a faculty member, um, you know, one of those factors that might make, me concerned that this isn't an isolated incident that more students um, or other campus community members could possibly be harmed, um, then I'm not gonna force the hand of the person that has experienced the conduct. I'm gonna really explain our policies and procedures, explain their rights and options, um, let them know what an investigation might look like, offer them supportive services, and let them make a decision if they wanna move forward with an investigation. And so for our investigations um, and in all California Title IX investigations based on California state law, um, the preponderance of the evidence, is going to be the standard that my investigations, um, you know, going to gonna be under. And so um, what I do is I talk to witnesses, gather evidence, and ultimately um, either I make a determination if there's enough evidence by preponderance um, to say that the, the policy has been violated, or it's going to go to a hearing model. Um, and, you know, the hearing officer will make that determination. So once I make my findings, Um, it's going to be handed over to either the Dean of Students Office or Faculty Affairs, depending on whether or not the the, um, respondent in the case was a student or a faculty member or maybe HR if they're an employee. And um, they are going to handle the punishment side of things. So that's where I'll pass the baton. Oh, thank you,
3: Karina. So we do In-house counsel serves kind of a lot of different roles. So one, we serve as a kind of advisor, if you will, if our Title IX coordinator has any questions about, hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking. Is this legal? Is this following process? You know, we don't get into the weeds of the investigation because at the end of the day, it may ultimately become litigation where we have to defend our decision but if there are high level questions that our title nine coordinator has to make sure we're doing what appears to be legal and right we will advise on that front um pursuant to title nine federal regulations all students are allowed to have counsel or a representative so if a student has counsel when they have meetings we sit in to make sure it doesn't become super litigious or to make sure you know that that they're not essentially badgering the witness you know because we always have to be mindful that we're not re-triggering the victim um and so with the new model there is a cross-examination component and so we sit in to make sure hey let's not berate the witness you can ask questions but you have to be respectful and be mindful um and then after karina's team does what they do you know we may get served um either by someone who is upset with the outcome whether it be the accused or the complainant or by someone who's alleging that we didn't follow the appropriate process outlined in our Title IX or sexual harassment policy. So we sit in kind of a very interesting position in terms of providing some level of oversight advice and counsel, depending on what stage of the investigation we're in. Um, But we let our Title IX folks do what they need to do. The other thing we do, at the institutions where I've worked with Title IX, is we often do audits at the end of each academic year to see, okay, what are we seeing? Is everything related mostly to drugs and alcohol? Is there, you know, is there a situation where we may seem to have some type of serial activity, but it's different people? Are they a part of the same? fraternal organization? Are they part of, you know, what are we seeing similarities? Is it the band that may have all these issues? You know, we do training every year and make sure that everyone is trained on the college campuses, but if we're seeing trends, are there things we need to do? So we work very closely in, a, in an advisory capacity as well with our Title IX office.
1: Wow. No, that's great. Thank you, Karina and Piper. Um, I just learned a ton in that too. So That's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, title nine is such a big issue. I even get calls on it sometimes, um, you know, in my private practice and it's, uh, most of the calls I get are I didn't get chosen for a team. And I think it's a title nine issue. And, um, sometimes those are legitimate and sometimes they're not, I think, uh, mostly on the agency side, which I'm not an agent, but most of the complaints I hear from agents and agencies, which many are our clients is, you know, their players or athletes complaining. Um, but it's not an issue of them being discriminated against. It's an issue of maybe they're not good enough. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I think, I think sometimes, uh, you know, it's like anything else. Your parents think that you're the best thing since sliced bread and, uh, so I think sometimes you have to inform the client that in a very nice way, you know, um, it's a tough conversation to have, but it's definitely uh, one of those things. So thank you, Karina. Thank you, Piper. I'm going to change gears a little bit. And Adam, I'm going to go back to you and to Jenna. Uh, talk a little bit about what is AB5 um, and, and ha- what kind of effect did that have on the employment and independent con- contractor relationships in California? And then maybe Jenna, right will start wrong. with you or, or Adam.
0: Oh, no, go ahead, Jenna. <laughs> uh,
4: you didn't want to touch that one <laughs> quite yet. Now, look, so I'm going to keep it simple because for the most part, I'll tell you, um, I, we do some wage an hour stuff. Um, and obviously this has an impact on all of that, but it's not like the primary focus of what I do, but I will tell you this. I do, do, you know, I add misclassification claims where, but it's usually they're, they're alongside of the fact that the person has these other claims as well. But generally in California, um, independent, being an independent contractor and whether or not that's been a proper classification has been an issue for a long, long time. The tests that are used to determine whether or not a person is an employee or an independent contractor has kind of changed somewhat over time. There's been confusion about it. AB5 really just put made law a recent California Supreme Court case that kind of laid out the the rules that you go by to determine whether or not someone is properly classified. Now, I won't get into all the ins and outs of it. From my perspective, the reason it's important and why it should be important to anyone who is potentially misclassified as an independent contractor is that independent contractors do not get most of the legal protections that employees get. And that's why it's such an issue and why you run into um, employers wanting to be able to classify people as independent contractors because they escape, um, it, it costs them less because they escape having to pay for certain things for those people. And it also exposes them to less liability. And a lot of independent contractors or misclassified ones don't understand that because as you probably saw in a lot of the commercials, they're painting it as this, I have freedom to do what I want as an independent contractor. And that's not, that's not really what this whole thing is about. The fight is about making sure that employers who are the ones who, um, from my perspective, have a duty to their employees to pro- you know, treat them properly, to provide them with the protections that they need to provide them, um, they're the ones in the position of classifying, right? And so we want them to do it right because from there um, trickles down all these protections that you can then sue under um, if you need to. Um, and so uh, it, that's why the whole thing is important. It's, it's, I, from my perspective, I think it's hard to properly classify an independent contractor because essentially, number one, there's a legal presumption that people are employees. So out the gate, it's going to be presumed that if you're doing work for someone else for money, you are an employee. And then they're gonna have to prove these different ways to show that you should be, that you can be properly classified as an independent contractor. So it just, it made it more difficult than it already was, I think, to properly classify um, people as independent contractors.
0: Thanks, Jenna. Yeah, I think... Yeah,
1: Yeah, go ahead, Adam, Sorry, Jenna, I
0: was gonna add to that. So I I think that's right. and from from so I, I come at this, obviously, from the, the employer perspective. But Jenna's right. is right. It, it's uh, there, there was an old test that um, is uh, not as often used anymore. And now uh, it's, it's basically the ABC test here in California. Uh, and it is difficult to get away with classifying someone as a 1099 independent contractor. Um, uh, a couple of things to keep in mind. This is the California test each each state has its own independent test. Um, So I represent employers that have uh, workers in, uh, some of them have them in 50 different states, right? So as a business, how are you going to survive or how are you going to comply with 50 different sets of rules? Very, very difficult to manage. Um, Sometimes employers will want to take risks. And uh, even if it's difficult to classify someone as a 1099 in California, um, in order for the businesses to survive, they have to do it that way. Um, so it, 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 there's, there's a lot of other uh, considerations that go into that decision-making process. Part of my job is to help my clients understand what their risk exposure might be. Um, and if someone really is, is not properly classified, my client needs to understand that, that an attorney like Jenna can represent someone who, who isn't properly classified and they could be subject to a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit, et cetera. Um, so I'll kind of throw out an example where we represented a trucking company who has drivers driving, uh, delivering Teslas um, across the country. And so they had you know hundreds of drivers in and out of California all the time. Um, and, and so for years, the trucking industry uh, was classifying those drivers as 1099s. Um, The drivers themselves wanted to be 1099, and uh, AB5 came along with the ABC test, um, and the drivers no longer could be classified that way. So um, we had a huge class action, a huge fight over it, um, and there used to be an exemption for the truck drivers from that ABC test. Now there's not under the current state of the law, so that's just one example of of how this uh, issue has been litigated.
1: Thanks, Adam. Um, appreciate you sharing that. Now, Karina and Piper, I imagine you both don't. Uh, well, Piper, you definitely don't deal with this because you're in North Carolina. But, um, but Karina, I wonder. I mean, I bet the schools probably dealt with this in the sense of if they've had independent contractors work for them and and that sort of thing. But it's probably a minor a minor detail in in your in your realm, right?
2: Sorry. Um, yeah. So our policies cover third parties. So if we have any independent contractors and we do, right. Like there's a Starbucks on campus and, um, the Starbucks employees are independent contractors. Um, and there's, you know, in the food court, right. There's going to be a lot of independent contractors. Um, There's a lot of construction going on all the time on campus. So we have a lot of third parties that are coming onto campus, um, interacting with the community, right? And so from my office's perspective, if they were, you know, on the receiving end of any sort of prohibited conduct or if they were um, taking part in prohibited conduct, they can be a complainant or um, a respondent in, you know, our investigations. So, um, you know, if you're an independent contractor, we're not going to necessarily have the same um pull over you, right? Um, but we can end contracts, you know, make it so you can't come back on campus, things of that nature. Um, as far as, you know, who's classified as an independent contractor and who isn't, that's definitely not my world. Um that's probably something Piper deals with a little bit more.
1: Piper, any anything, no thanks for that, Karina. Anything in your realm in North Carolina that somewhat similar to this or classification stuff?
3: Not really. I mean, just from a contractor standpoint, you know, when you start talking about how we treat contractors, we make everybody who comes on campus abide by our campus policies. Um, And so, you know, violations of that in terms of how you treat employees, because we're a state school. So if you discriminate against contractors that come on campus, you know, based on a protected class or you engage in sexual harassment, and we have quite a bit of contractors who like to be inappropriate with our young ladies um and so you know we hold them responsible and and do the title IX investigation just the same way so not completely like that law but those are kind of how it applies to our state institutions
1: no thank you yeah and that brings up a whole like new wrinkle too it's the whole connection to title nine as well right because a lot of times even private schools are subject to title nine because they're accepting federal dollars federal grants what have you so even if you're not a um you know, a state institution, you know, a Cal State University or a University of California, for example, or a North Carolina Central University. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you're still subject to Title IX. Well, no, thank you all for that. I want to sort of close with a couple questions. And um, Adam and Jenna, going back to you, maybe talk a little bit about non-competes in California and and sort of how those are uh, essentially void, but maybe uh, be a more, little more legal about it as opposed to my my simple definition.
0: Sure, Jenna, I'll start and then uh, and then I'll let you supplement anything or correct anything I say. Um, <laughs> so in, in California, it's a free market, right? If Tom Brady was playing for the 49ers um, in the, lo- the it, under the law of California, I, I cannot prohibit Tom Brady from leaving the 49ers and going to play for a competitor, the Oakland, uh, well, Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, I'm a Bay Area guy, so I, I keep saying Oakland Raiders. Um, so uh, essentially, that, that's, that's what the law is in California. You can't prohibit someone from joining a competitor, uh, whereas uh, somewhere like um, Illinois or New York or Texas, the laws are different. So kind of like the independent contractor laws, uh, non-compete laws in each state are different. Um, and so in other, in other states, you, you, you can prohibit someone or Tom Brady from joining uh, the other competitor team um, for maybe two years or three years. And then maybe Tom could join the team. But um, California is different. What you can prohibit in California, though, is someone uh, stealing my confidential information, my uh, trade secrets, which is a complex definition, uh, and taking those trade secrets or confidential information and using them to compete against me. I, I can prohibit someone from doing that, um, but it's often difficult to prove that someone stole my stuff. Um, and, and it's 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 rare to have that smoking gun email to prove it, uh, et cetera, kind of like what Jenna was mentioning before.
1: No, thanks, Adam. Uh, Jenna, anything you want to add to that one?
0: Um,
4: yeah, I mean, they're void. Uh, the reason they're void really is because it's an unlawful restraint on a person's ability to have a livelihood, essentially, in California. Um, but on a little technicality, it applies after you've worked somewhere. So if you leave one place, they can't tell you what you can do after, essentially. But while you're working there, it's totally reasonable to say, uh, Tom Brady, you can't play for this team and that team at the same time. Uh, or you can't work for, you know, Starbucks and Pete's Coffee at the same time, you know, it, that's just like common law kind of stuff. But um, yeah, the app, and there was, a, that was a kind of a fight in the law for a while, because there's been varying um, ways in which companies were allowed to do this kind of non-compete stuff. Non-solicitation is another one. Um, but these things are void now because California is is a very open, free state. And we want people to be able to um, have a livelihood and work where
1: where they want to work. Right. And this is important because a lot of times this comes up in contracts that maybe some of you might see or that sort of thing. and there's very few um, reasons to allow it. like for example, if you're a business partner, right, you can have uh, a non-compete in there, uh, particularly if you're selling like goodwill uh, in the sense of like a you know business name or that sort of thing. but other than that, Um, It's pretty limited, right? Jenna and Adam in California. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then if you guys could both explain, and I'm imagining that Karina and um, Hypery both probably don't deal too much with that aspect. The non-competes now. There's only one Cal State San Marcos. (laughs) And uh, and I imagine that the schools tend to be pretty good when it comes to it's usually what I see and Adam, correct me on this. It's usually private employers or bigger corporations, right? It's not gonna be um, academic institutions. So uh, the sort of last question I wanna get into is sort of distinguishing um, at-will and point empo- employment in California. Uh, what is at-will employment? And then Adam, let's start with you and then go to Jenna.
0: Yeah, I, I think it, to put it simply, um, At will employment means that I, the employee, or you, the employer, can end this relationship at any time we want Um, versus uh, a reason for ending the relationship, um, such as I can only end the relationship for cause or if if someone does something wrong or violates a rule. In California, we're an at will state, Um, so generally, the rule is that um, an employer can let an employee go at, at any time. Um, now, the employee can claim uh, that the person was let go or he or she was let go unfairly for based on a protected class, et cetera, um, which Jenna can certainly expand more upon. Um, but yeah, at will means you can be let go at any time or I, the employee, can leave at any time.
1: Thanks, Adam. Jenna, anything to add to that one?
4: Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. it. Essentially, you can be let go for any reason, even if you don't think it's a good reason. So long though as the reason is lawful. So uh, a reason that's not a good reason, but was not based on your disability or gender or what or any of the protected classes is fine. Um, and you can leave, you know, without notice, even even though it's it's better to give a little notice, but you can leave without any notice and you're not tied to the employer. And the difference, you know, if you were an, a contracted for employee, you would likely have a contract that's for a certain term. So it's guaranteeing you have work for the next five years, and it's guaranteeing that you can't be fired involuntarily unless uh, the company shows just cause. And they might spell it out for you in a contract, or they might not. But that's kind of uh, it doesn't happen um, uh, a lot in the world that I deal with. Although I do have some contracted for employees, and on the same token, in their contract, there's often a longer notice period or some kind of way and timing in which they have to give their their resignation um, so but for the most part most people are at will. although i guess in the sports world they're all probably heavily contracted
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah um well i guess maybe a closing question for for everybody and then i'll um if if y'all can stay on for a bit there's some questions from the audience um so, Piper, I'll go with you, then Karina, and then Adam, and then Jenna. Um, you know, obviously, we've got, you know, 50, 60-something students in this class. You know, this is a sport management program. Um, maybe some sort of tips or some advice on sort of breaking into an industry. Uh, maybe some sort of uh, some nuggets of wisdom that you you all have gained along the way. And we'll start with you, Piper.
3: So, um One of my biggest tips is do good work no matter where you are. You know, um, I never really saw myself getting into the sports industry. Um, I just happened to have a mentor um, who connected me, thanks to my mom, actually. Um, And then I did good work every place else. And so you never know who knows whom. Um, And I think that's critical in a lot of respects in terms of everything from what you're putting on Twitter to how you're dressing when you go, you know, to a job. You know, you don't know whose sister works for the 49ers or whose cousin, you know, has a sports agent firm. I mean, I think that that's critical. And I also think you need to be open to everything. Um, I always tell my sports law students that sports law is the practice of law in any practice area. So you can be a sports law attorney doing contracts for players. You can be LeBron's divorce attorney and be a sports lawyer because you've done such a great job that anybody getting divorced or needing a prenup, LeBron will recommend you, right? And so don't be wed to the traditional notion of okay, sports management means I have to work for an agent or I have to work for CAA or, you know, these big names, you'll get there. It will come, they will fall into your lap and there's great opportunities. Um, I think there's a lot of space right now for name, image and likeness newcomers. I mean, this space is huge and so many people are unsure of what this uncharted territory is. So look into these untouched areas. You know, the the NBA is looking in the BRICS countries. So Brazil, Russia, um, India, China, right? Like, don't be afraid, particularly when you're younger and don't have major attachments like kids or family to take care of, you know, be willing to figure it out. Because once your foot is in the sports industry door, it's kind of incestuous, right? Like, there's not a lot of us there's not a lot of people that are able to break in. And once they do, or once you have that opportunity, things kind of just fall into place for you, but you have to be willing to be patient. If you can afford the opportunity, take some internships. If you can afford the opportunity for a week, um, you know, volunteer to work for the Rose Bowl or these one-off events. I mean, really the biggest part about being in the sports industry is who you know And can you get it done? And if those two answers become yes, and again, you can know somebody who's tangentially related to someone else in the sports industry and that will land you your job, but you have to be patient and you have to be willing to take a circuitous route sometimes to get there, but just stay the course and know that you may start off, for example, in sales, making $20,000, not happy about it. But if you look at the trajectory of a lot of um, C-suite folks, they started in sales and now they're VPs and, and CEOs and COOs. So just be open, college, um, high school, you know, pros, minor leagues, just be open, but always do a good job.
1: Oh, thank you, Piper. That's great. Uh, Karina.
2: Yeah, so um, I don't know if any of you actually... Are interested in the work I do specifically, um, but I think I'm going to echo a lot of what Piper is saying. Um, for me, internships were so instrumental. Um, the really cool thing about inst- internships is that you end up getting exposed to a lot of different populations and demographics, and especially in the world, um, you know how, how the developments that are happening today. Having a strong understanding of of diversity and how um, different backgrounds intersect um, and being able to navigate, you know, those spaces and having conversations about racism, sexism, right? Um, Being able to be comfortable doing that comes from putting yourself out there, um, you know, taking different opportunities, learning from everybody you can, um, you know, working in diverse populations. And and so internships are such a great opportunity to do that. Um, And, and, you know, you get to build that resume and also meet a lot of people. Um, So pretty much... My career sort of got rolling from internships I took in law school. Um, And yeah, do good work, right? Make friends, um, you know, be reliable. Um, That's like number one, right? If someone knows that they can count on you, they're going to keep going to you um, and they're going to remember your name. They're going to tell other people your name. So um, show up. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. Thank you, Karina. All right, Adam.
0: Yeah, I, I um, <clears throat> Karina said be reliable, and um, that's <laughs> it's so key. And um, another way to articulate articulate that, or a way to show you're reliable, is to respond <laughs> um, respond to to an email that day, um, even if you're busy and working on something else. Let the person know that you received the email, and that you'll get back to them. Um, Whatever, but you know, don't don't not respond. You know that that makes me feel like oh man i just gave someone an assignment or an opportunity and they're not they're not interested right so um i i'll I'll just leave everyone with with some advice that i recently learned um about building relationships um and and really it's it's not a transactional thing i think the word networking is a horrible word it's really it's really should be more about connecting with people and the way to do that um is to become a good storyteller and, and really hone in on who you are, what your story is. And a lot of you are still building your story. I'm still building my story. Jeremy's still building his. Everyone's building their story, but um, be vulnerable and, and share things with people um, and, and, and really connect with them. Um, the, the best way to connect with someone is to describe a hardship that you overcame. And I guarantee you that person um, went through something similar uh, it, earlier in their life, or is going through it now. Um, so just really focus on h- how can I connect with this person uh, without trying to get something from them? Um, how can I make it genuine and, and come across as, as if I'm genuinely trying to get to know them and even trying to help them? Um, doing things like that now and planting seeds now uh, strategically can help you careerize down, down the road.
1: That's great advice. Thanks, Adam. And then Jenna, let's, uh, the closer let's, uh, let's, let's bring it home. So uh, what is, uh, what is your sage advice for our, for our class?
4: I mean, I have to say all the advice that they've given is a hundred percent spot on. I can really like identify things in my own life that happened because of some of the things that they're saying. Um, Piper said, you know, it's, it's, it's who, you know, you never know. Um, You know who might mean something to you in your life. My resume got passed to my firm by a partner in my old firm that I never worked with. She was not a partner when I was there. um, And she only happened to kind of tangentially see some of the things I was doing because she kept in touch with my boss. And she said, well, if he says she's great, I'm gonna pass this on to my current firm because she was friends with the partners here and they were looking. I had nothing to do with any of that. Uh, you know, being open to anything, being flexible a thousand percent, you never know what, where an opportunity is going to lead you and if you might enjoy it. Um, With right now, you know, doing employment law and now kind of dabbling in Title IX is something I never would have expected. I'm not a sports person. I've seriously had to look up all sorts of things about how Division one works in NCAA and college sports. I can I was nowhere near college sports. I have no idea, but I find it so interesting, and it's such a great opportunity. Um, something you can do it wherever you're working is make yourself an expert on something. New stuff pops up all the time, and you know, example with the Title Nine stuff. I made myself in my office. I am nowhere near an expert in in the in the nation, but in my office, I'm the expert because I took the time. To look into it, and now I'm getting to work with some of the top title nine people in the nation. And if this arises again, it might be a, a, a different kind of income stream for my firm. So keep yourself open. You never know where it's going to take you. You never know what something really is like until you're working in it. Um, and then, you know, I think be proactive. Try to anticipate the needs of others because you're going to start off working for other people. You're not you're not going to be at the top. And if you can really show them. Um, you know, that you are anticipating needs and, that you know, what might be coming down the pipeline and you're helping them out, that's huge. Um, and I'll leave you with this final thing, because this I thought was good advice from a boss. Um, when you're trying to kind of connect, as Adam said, which I love that, um, it, and, and, you know, getting a job or, or, or whatever, it's, it's, people need to know you, but they need to really trust you. And you don't get trust Uh, At the same time you get, no, you got to, you got to earn their trust. You have to show them by being reliable, dependable, um, all of these kinds of things, doing good work. That's, um, so anyway, I piggyback on everyone's advice. I thought it was superb.
1: (laughs) I love that. Well, thanks Jenna. And, um, just a real big sort of round of applause for, for, um, for Karina Conley, who again is our, um, Title IX uh, Coordinator at Cal State University San Marcos, soon to be at uh, San Diego State. Piper Mitchell, uh, Assistant University Legal Counsel at North Carolina Central University, soon to be at Duke University. I feel like everybody got pay raises and uh, uh, some kind of employment jump here on this call. I'm, hopefully, it's because of this, because of this uh, Zoom, but we'll see. <laughs> Um, and then Adam, uh, who is partner at, uh, Fisher Phillips and then Jenna Rangel, who is, uh, an attorney at what's the name of the firm again, Jenna. Hey, Quist and Eck. All right. Got it right. Okay. So thank you all for being here. All right, folks. Thanks again for listening in. That was uh, episode 44 of season three, uh, for the believe in sports law podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Evans. And uh, this is the Believe in Sports Law podcast. Thank you again for making the Believe in Sports Law podcast the number one sports law podcast in the world. This episode has been brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you so much and have a great week.